0: life. That's exactly what he would talk about. Jesus was not someone who was talking about things that were irrelevant to your life or my life. Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. 2000 years later, we are communicating that same message to you here this morning, this Easter season. This Easter season, there's somebody in your life who needs to know that they can have an abundant life. I encourage you to continue to pray and extend that invite to somebody who you believe needs life. Because it's found only in Jesus Christ. Now it's interesting, after Christ's ascension to the heavens, before he comes back again, we've got this church age, this 2,000 years and the church began right on the heels of Jesus ascending into the heavens. And, and right at the forefront of somebody moving the church around the world or planting the church was the Apostle Paul. As is seen in that video clip and in the film this weekend, Paul took light into dark places. Dark places. It wasn't necessarily that they're all so evil and corrupt and ugly. It's just there's lostness. Where's the hope? Where's the beauty of life at? And he would take hope into dark places. And he would do it one town after another, town after another. And he did take it to the city of Philippi. And in Philippi, he shared the good news of Jesus. He was Jesus' spokesman about life and how to have it abundantly. That it was going to be found through Christ. And they started following Christ in that town. And then they began to, to build their church. Oh, not a physical building, but the community of people, one invite at a time. Sharing with people that Jesus Christ had been raised from the dead, and there was hope not only in eternal life, but there was hope in this present life, and that Jesus came to speak about life itself. And we're a continuation of that 2,000 years later, and we and we get to do it again as we head towards Easter. As I sometimes tell people, we don't get a lot of Easter's in our life a lot of opportunities to invite people, to encourage people, to say, hey, this is maybe one time of the year where it's appropriate to to maybe extend an invitation. I was getting my hair cut this week and barber chair number one. Uh, he recognized me from another shop, and we were talking, and he knew I was a pastor and that kind of thing, and remembered remember my son coming in and getting his hair cut, and we were chatting, and guess what? I was without one of these. I was even without a business card. Because I needed to give him an extended invite because he expressed interest, possible interest. So you keep your eyes open. Because we're doing the same thing the Apostle Paul did 2,000 years later. We are extending not just an invitation to a church service to talk about religious things. We're extending an invitation for people to come to Jesus and experience life and experience it to its fullest. And we are commissioned to be witnesses In one simple manner or another, the Lord wants to use you this season, this spring season, to reach someone for Him. Because there's lostness, there's darkness, there's people that are successful, but they're also realizing there has to be something more. And so we get to extend that good news. What we're going to look at today is Philippians chapter 4. And so this is the last chapter in Philippians, but as we look at Philippians chapter 4, Um, it's one of those scriptures ruminated on, looked through, thought about it, and I'm like, how do we sum it up in the points for this first nine verses of Philippians 4? And I realized sometimes you don't need to rewrite what the scriptures say and just let the scriptures be the points. So that's what we're going to do today. We're just going to park here, spend a little bit of time in Philippians 4. And how is Paul exhorting those Philippians to live life? Because he did the same thing Jesus did. He took on the subject matter of real life. And here he is talking about real life to the church in Philippi, to the church, the awakening in the um, Temecula Valley. All right? So here we go. Philippians 4, 1 says this. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown... That is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Now, we know from scriptures, uh, from this letter, that this is a very personal letter. He likes these people. He misses these people. He's in prison in Rome, most likely. He really would like to be with them. He's encouraging them. They sent somebody to him. He's sending that person back, Ephroditus, to encourage them that he's okay. And he has this longing for them. You could go back to chapter 1. He's endeared to people. So these are personal friends. And we looked at uh, last week or so that this is a personal letter that we're reading. And so he says, therefore, my brothers. Now, why is the there, therefore? You always have to ask that. Well, he's tying it back into what he just said. And we spoke on it last week. Philippians 3 has his strong exhortation to watch out for the dogs, not to fall into some religious elitism, because he had it all when it came to the religious elitism stuff. And he said it was all lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. And he says, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Forgetting what is behind, I'm straining towards what is ahead. Let us live up to what we've already attained," he challenged them. He said, "Take note of the example that we live before you, and don't be like those who live as enemies of the cross of the uh, enemies as the cross of Christ." He says, "Because we have a citizenship in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, who's transforming our lowly body so they will be like His heavenly body." So he got all consumed with this passionate appeal. And we looked at it last week that you should strain towards what is ahead and own up to what you've already attained. By the way, last week, I want to encourage you for diving into some of the theology that we talked about. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you to to listen to the message online. I didn't know if I would get lost in the weeds on this whole subject of sanctification. But I don't think I got lost too far in the weeds because many of you gave positive affirmation of the truth that we talked about last week concerning our positional sanctification, our crisis sanctification, and our progressive sanctification that was very helpful to you. And that was encouraging to me, not because, oh, wow, I did a whole decent job. No, it's because this is a life-changing truth to know that it's Christ in us and it's his life that's now being worked through us. But all that was in chapter 3, or in the middle part of this letter, and then Paul comes and he says in Verse 1 of chapter 4, My brothers whom I long love and long for, my joy my crown, this is how you should stand firm. He's referring to all that passionate appeal of who Christ is. Knowing him, the power of his resurrection, living up to what we've already attained with his life living within us, straining towards what is ahead. He says, this then is how you should stand firm. Another reason, I guess, if you didn't listen to last week, to be able to listen to it, because that's what he's saying is to stand firm. Now, there's something interesting about this analogy, though, because he's saying that we should stand firm, but yet he um, said that we need to be straining towards what is ahead. Now, when you're straining as an athlete, trying to get across the finish line, you're thinking of movement. But then after saying that we need to be moving in a direction, he says to stand firm. Do any of you have little idioms or things you say over and over again and somebody catches you with them? It's like, oh, that's, that's sort of your phrasing. That's how you always sort of say. Well, this stand firm idea is one of the things Paul just sort of Always says he really likes it. In fact, let me list a few of them for you. First Corinthians fifteen fifty eight, stand firm, let nothing move you. First Corinthians sixteen thirteen, stand firm in the faith. Galatians five one, stand firm and do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery referring to sin. Ephesians six eleven, take your stand against the devil's schemes. Ephesians six thirteen, having done everything then to stand. Philippians one twenty seven earlier in this epistle. Stand firm in one spirit. Do you remember that? And then Colossians 4.12, stand firm in all the will of God. And 2 Thessalonians 2.15, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you. What does it mean to stand firm? Spread your legs, bury them in the truth, and hold on to Christ. Hold on to Christ. When all the other winds are blowing you around, Right? You stand firm then in this truth that Christ has been raised from the dead and his resurrected life lives within you. And you have attained this not by what you've done, but because of his grace. So you embrace who Christ is and then you choose to walk out that Christ likeness by straining towards what is ahead and living the example as Christ teaches us through his scripture and Paul modeled in his own life. Stand firm. Does somebody need to speak into your life today that way? What you doing wobbling back and forth? Any of you ever wobbled in your faith? Wobbled with doubt, insecurities, double-mindedness? Someone just needs to step into your life and say, Hey, buddy, stand firm. Okay, I'm going to persevere best I can through this. No. It's not just a grit and grin, I'm going to hold my own and and I'm not going to topple. You are standing firm in all this truth that comes before verse 1 in chapter 4. And so he's encouraging them, stand firm. He moves on then to this troubled subject happening then in the church because this is sort of under girded a little bit at the tension and things he's addressed through this personal letter. He says this in Ephesians 4 verse 2, I plead with Yerdiah and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Now, one of the first things I want to say addressing this is, Paul had real people he dealt with. They had names, just like you have names in here. And he was thinking of them. He was not writing this letter to some big, vague group of people. It was personalized to individuals who had good points and bad points. Any of you have both those today? I do. Good points and bad points. And he's pointing out a bad point with these two ladies who were involved in the work, whom he loved and cared for. I'm sure they were great women. In fact, their names, um, Yeradiah, I think that's how you say or somewhere they're close, uh, means sweet smell. And Synthachi means friendly. But apparently, uh, sweet smell and friendly were not being sweet and friendly to one another. Okay? They were at each other over something. And it probably was something of significance. Why didn't he say what it was? Well, in part, Paul doesn't care what it was. Because disagreements, conflict is common to all of us in life. We all have it when we rub shoulders with someone else. You can live as a solo person on an island if you want. But then you'll probably have problems with the the bugs or the animals or the trees or something. We're just sort of wired to have disagreements and problems as human beings. Okay? Okay. So his point wasn't what the disagreement was. He challenges them to agree with each other in the Lord. So he's exhorting them to turn back towards what they have in common. Any of you in conflict right now with somebody? What do you do with conflict? My daughter was writing a little paper on conflict the other day, and, you know, and I thought, well, that's interesting. You've started at a young age. Let's, let's deal with it? Maybe it'll help in our house, you know? And um, the whole subject of conflict is a part of everyday life. And a lot of times I encourage people to, you know, if you want to resolve conflict, why don't you look instead of the finger pointing there, look at the three they they're pointing back at you. What do you bring to the problem? Let's focus on what you bring, not what the other person brings. Well, you know, they did this, this, and this, and this. And you can sort of think about, you know, sweet smell and friendly. They're probably this, this, and this, and this with one another, right? And it's like, no, it's just own up to what we have. But Paul doesn't even go there. The first thing he says, the main thing he says... The only thing he really says to resolve conflict is to agree with each other in the Lord. Which means when you have conflict with someone, why don't you sit down and first come up with a big list of what you agree on? Guess what you're going to find? You probably agree on a lot more things than you disagree on. And the focus gets not on the negative, it gets on the positive. But the positive isn't just some positive feel-good kind of thing. Oh, let's just all agree, everything's you know hunky-dory. Agree with each other in the Lord. What do you have in common as a Christ follower with another Christ follower? Because Paul, I won't park there too long, he is adamant, in part, maybe an underbelly of being ticked, when one Christian isn't getting along with another Christian. It's wrong. It's sin. And he exhorts them, do something about it. Just don't let this go on and on and on. Don't come in and sit on one side of the auditorium because the other person's sitting on the other side of the auditorium. You need to get together and resolve at some level this conflict and you go to what you agree on first. Then you realize there's not a lot maybe that you disagree on and you can try to mutually work that out. And so he encourages them to do this. Then he says, yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow. We have no idea who a uh, loyal yoke fellow is. Though I did read something this week, which was interesting. As one person says, I think the loyal yoke fellow was Epaphroditus. Because the Apostle Paul, hang with me here for a second. The Apostle Paul would not literally write what he wrote. He had like a secretary. It refers to this different times. We think maybe he had poor eyesight and some other things. You saw that video, Paul. Pretty much stature was right there. They think it was shorter, balding, that kind of thing. I don't know if he had the beard or whatever. But he had um, this dimension to him that he he had a a thorn in the side, a a pain in his life that he God hadn't re- released him from. They think maybe it was his eyesight issues, uh, some other possibilities too. So he had this secretary who'd write things, and so the guy was saying, he says, you know, I think. Paul was writing this in prison, and he was telling his secretary, who's over here, he's chained to the guard here, and Eproditus is over here, the guy who brought the, the greeting, and he's going to send the letter back with Eproditus And he's now addressing this problem in the church with these two ladies. And he says, you know, I just plead, I just exhort, I'm, I'm, I'm you got to get along with one another, do what's necessary, agree with one another, and um, I'm going to just, you know, ask you, loyal yoke fellow, um, if you would help them. And the scribes over here just writing it down. He doesn't realize that Paul didn't really intend the loyal yoke fellow to be written down because he just looked over at Epaphroditus and said, as loyal yoke fellow, you could sort of help out with that situation too. And so it was unintentionally included in scripture. Now, I don't know what you think about that, but I had to smile because one of the things I love about this word of God is it's real. It's real, and it's dealing with real people, real situations. The inspiration of the Holy Spirit did not dictate Scripture. Write this word, this word, this right. It is inspired through the natural writings. It's all authoritative, inerrant, God-inspired, yes. But it wasn't dictated word for word. It was just a real-life setting in a prison cell. Loyal yoke fellow, can you help with this? These two, you know, sweetie and friendly. Just let them get along with one another. Scribes just writing it down, loyal yoke fellow. I'd like that explanation, actually, because it just makes the scriptures more real. So he exhorts them in this, and he's telling them to stand firm in the faith, and then he's addressing these issues that he sees, and he says, Because of the faith that we have, we should be in agreement with one another. Then he comes back to his theme that this whole letter is about why we call it joy in Christ. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again. Rejoice. Do you know that little song? Rejoice in the Lord always. I hated the song. Just sort of went over and over. I rejoice in the Lord. I mean, it's fine if you like the song, but hey, the truth in the song, the truth in the scripture is what we have to grab a hold of. You and I are exhorted this week. I'm not going to ask how many of you had a bad week. How many of you had a long week, a challenging week? How many of you felt that you were financially in a pinch this week or physically you were under the weather? Uh, the exhortation comes amidst all life circumstances. And he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And I'm going to reemphasize it again, not that I haven't done it already in this letter, and he did it a lot of times in this letter, rejoice. And we've talked about this whole subject matters. He's aligned it in this series. That if our joy is based upon our circumstances, it is fleeting. But when it's founded on Jesus Christ, his life within us, it is strong and secure. Because your circumstances aren't the most important thing to God. Your circumstances will change. Highs, lows, in betweens. What's important to God Is how you interface with life and where you find your joy at. And is your joy found in him rather than your circumstances? Some of you may be familiar with John Piper. John Piper coined this phrase that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Do I need to say that again? God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And in that reason, the hashtag Joy in Christ, which if you come to the Spring Fling today, you can do an AR workshop craft. Joy in Christ, right, Angie? Joy in Christ is not based on your circumstances. It's a based upon Christ. And you needed to hear that again. Why? Because apparently, Paul, who's been writing, wanted to say it again. And not just one more time. He said, I'm going to say it a- another time. I will say it again. Rejoice. And then he adds this, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. So in the midst of the conflict that he was addressing with these ladies, he exhorts them in in two primary ways. One is to rejoice in the Lord. Find out what you agree upon. Rejoice in the Lord if in the midst of conflict. Rejoice in the Lord and then let your gentleness which is hard to translate into an English word. It really has more of a sense of forbearance, all right? Endurance kind of thing. Let your gentleness be evident to all. If somebody was to describe you in life, say, hey, I got a friend, and my friend's really cool, this, this, and this. They do this. They've done this. You know, I like him because of this. In that list of things that your friend describes you as, would one of the words be gentleness? Gentleness. I don't know that that's true of my life. care okay, he's just such a gentle person. Gentle doesn't mean wimpy or, or weak. It means just forbearing, enduring, and kind, and the way that they interface one with another. Sweetie and friendly apparently were not being gentle one with another. And so he reminds them to rejoice in the Lord. What do you agree with? And then he says, hey, you know, heads up, be gentle uh, and let it be evident to all. The Lord is near. And then he steps into this phrase, which is smack on real life. If Jesus showed up, he would talk on this. Paul talks on it because it's common to human nature. Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything. Anything. Guess what here this morning? There is not one thing that you are anxious about that's not included in that list. Not one thing. We could go around and just sort of take a whole collection of things we're anxious and worrying about. And Paul sums it up in the word anything. Do not be anxious about anything. Now, if I had time, I'd park it a little bit more. But let me just try to expose my heart on this issue some because it's sort of true in my own life. I have a tendency to get anxious, not in an ugly way. I have a tendency to worry, not in a depressional kind of way. But it's just sort of a low residual that's riding there in my life about life. Do you have that? What am I going to do? How am I going to push forward? Is this going to happen? You know, one of my things I'm anxious on right now is I really need to get a house sold that I still own back in the Midwest I'm going to try to get it on the market in April, and I've been worrying and worrying about that, you know, anxious about that, right? It's like, oh, here's something I'm anxious about. Okay, I can't be anxious about it. Bummer, because I don't know else how else to deal with it other than just have anxiety over it, right? So there's this low grade of other things, and, and, and I think sometimes because of social media, because I watch maybe too much news, other kinds of things, you take on a lot of the problems of the world, and you get anxious about things being resolved. Is that going to happen? There's always a crisis going on. There's always something bad going on. And so we keep our minds filled with these kinds of things. And so we live a life, of low residual anxiousness and worrisomeness about our own life, about things of the world, about people around us, Right. I know we're supposed to pray for one another, carry the burdens of one another, but boy, you start to carry the burdens of a lot of people, then it starts to make you worry and concern for them. We have this low-grade level of anxiety. Paul's saying don't be anxious about anything. It's like, thank you very much, Paul. Of course, he's in prison, so he's got a reason. And so now you're waiting for Pastor Kerry to open up the scripture a little bit more and tell us what to do. But I don't know that that's the big issue, what we need to do about this anxiety. I think we need to come to grips with the way that we live, with anxiety and worry and undo heavy hearts. Now there's times to have heavy hearts, I'm not saying that. That anxiety equals not just bad. Anxiety equals sin. Have you ever thought about your anxiety being sin? Ooh. Can you keep moving on to the next verse? No, because when he says don't be anxious about anything, I mean, the man's in prison for goodness sake. And he writes this letter about joy and thanksgiving and gladness. What is it in him that makes this thing happen better? There is something to be said about us realizing that a life of anxiety and worry is not pleasing to God. Are there legitimate circumstances that can bring it? Sure, there are. But do you weigh down into it? Do you just burn yourself by it? Or do you do something with it because the Lord wants you to walk away from sin? So do not be anxious about anything. But in everything. By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How many of you heard this verse before? How many of you had this mem- verse memorized before? How many of you need to hear that verse again today? I did this week. Do not be anxious about anything. Now, here, there, there's three parts to this little section here. There's anxious... There's prayer and there's peace, okay? And prayer is embedded between anxious and peace. And the peace of God, the word and there, or that we'll take the word but, but in everything by prayer and and. It doesn't mean just, you know, another one, add it, add it, add it. There's something about the connectedness of these three things that's critical to see. If you have anxiety and worry, you desire to have peace. All of us would say that. But in between is the connector between the anxiety and the peace. And it's prayer. And it's not just frivolous prayer or desperation prayer. It's prayer that has petition to it. And it has thanksgiving to it. Petition means supplication is the big word. But it's like you you let your request be known to God. Here's the situation, God. And as you're laying that situation to God, you are dropping into a spirit of thanksgiving in your prayers as you're making your request to God. And so it's not just frivolous, wishful popcorn. Oh, maybe it's petition the Lord. Lord, this is weighing heavy on my heart. Maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's a financial matter. Maybe it's a broken friendship or a family member that's astray. And. You worry, and you have anxiety over this. You put your head on the pillow at night, and your mind just races off there. Before you know it, you're like, how did I just spend 15 minutes on that, and I didn't solve anything? You need in those moments with your head on the pillow to pray, to petition the Lord about that, and in that petition, To begin offering thanks because the reason anxiety many a times can be defined and worry as sin is because you are not trusting God that he's going to be faithful and you're calling God to be a liar. That's a little heavy. I didn't really think about it that way. Hebrews 11, 6, And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who earnestly petition, seek him. And Philippians four nineteen which is later here, right towards the end, And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Just a couple verses out there. A couple more verses to exhort us that we need to have this prayer of petitioning and thanksgiving and then it says and the peace of god which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds you know what a guard does right stands firm is protecting your heart and your mind need protection because left to themselves, they go off all these wondering, worrisome anxiety paths. And you live a life, not just day by day, week by week, month by month. Boom, boom, boom. How did it get to be this late? How's it spring already? It just turned to be 2018. And you look back your first three months and go, I just caught up in a lot of worry and concern. And this. Friends, you were called to live life and enjoy it. Sin has entered this world. Brokenness is there. But Jesus came to set us free, to redeem us through his grace. And by faith, we take hold of that life for which God has granted to us. It's not. It's not about positive thinking. It's about thinking about the positive one. The one who gave his life and lives in us. So the circumstances may not change even when you pray, but your attitude, one of sincere seeking and trusting God that he will make all things right, if not in this life and the life to come, and that he has gone to prepare a place for you and I, and that he sent his spirit to be with us as a companion. You start to dwell on those things. And guess what? The heart starts to shift and it's protected. It's guarded by the peace of God that comes. You see. I could have you do it. I won't have you do it this morning. Time runs on. But the backside of your program has a blank space. Some of you maybe take notes. Some of you don't. At the top of that, just write this. Reasons to Rejoice. And your homework for this week is to take 10 to 15 minutes and write up a list of things to rejoice about. Because that leads to the spirit of thanksgiving, a spirit of thanksgiving that's going to guard your heart and your mind against that which is sin. And if it's not sin, at least it's destructive to your wholeness and joy in life at the moment, no matter what it is. It's amazing to me some of the The deepest, some of the people with the deepest sense of joy or sometimes some of the people with the deepest heartache and brokenness that's been true of their life. There's a little hymn. Some of you might have known it called leave it there and you know that verse and uh, i grew up singing this hymn and um, it's sort of based off of psalm fifty-five twenty-two, which says cast your burdens on the lord and uh, he will sustain you he will care for you will strengthen you this hymn was written back early in the 1900s and just simply says leave it there leave it there Take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. If you trust and never doubt, He will surely bring you out. Take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. Any of you know that one? A few of you old timers. I've had to learn to take my burden and my worry and my anxiety and just leave it there. Dump it at the foot of the cross. You may have heard me sometimes, if definitely have been in marital counseling, I think I bring it up the whole thing of gunny sacking. Do you know what a gunny sack is? It's a burlap sack. It's real cheap, but used to have grain and burlap sacks. And, um, sometimes we will gunny sack one another and the gunny sack illustration just simply is this is that was take it in a marriage that the wife's carrying around this gunny sack on her back and her husband does something wrong and she just sort of remembers that but throws it in the gunny sack doesn't say anything about it he forgot to pick somebody up he forgot to accomplish some task she's like i'll just throw it in the gunny sack right And then he fumbles and he does something else that's wrong. And she doesn't say anything about it. She just throws it in the gunny sack. But she's carrying the gunny sack around. And the long story short of it is he leaves the shoes in the middle of the room. And she had just cleaned the whole house. She kneels down. She picks up those shoes. She throws them in the gunny sack. And she says to herself, I can't believe this. And then she goes, why am I carrying around such a big Burden, this big sack full of stuff that my husband's done. And what she does is she goes and gunny sacks her husband who's sitting in the lazy boy. Now, I have a lazy boy, so this is relevant to my life. (laughs) And not that my wife necessarily does it. She's very kind, but she has reason to do it. She takes the burlap sack off the wife does, and she just dumps the whole thing because she's tired of it. Now, the husband's like, chill, man, what happened? I just left my shoes in the wrong place. How did I just get dumped on like that? Well, the reason you got dumped on is not because of the shoes you left in the middle of the room, sir. It's because you have accumulated things in your life with your spouse that have not had a resolve to them. And she's tired of carrying the stuff around. And so you get gunny-sacked. Now, what do you do when you get gunny-sacked? You need to go through every item and talk through every item. But sometimes that illustration can be flipped in a good way. Because Jesus can take it. Do you have a gunny-sack of stuff you're anxious and worried about? Just go gunny-sack on Jesus. Just dump it all out. Leave it there, leave it there. Take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. When you trust and never doubt, He will surely bring you out. Take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. I physically see this in my eyes. The cross. We have the cross around the corner of the outside building. Now the cross set up to take pictures for Easter and that kind of stuff. But I go to the cross and I just dump it on God. And I say, there, deal with that stuff. And he looks at me and he says, okay, I'll deal with the stuff, the circumstances at some level, but I really don't want to work on the circumstances as much as I want to work on your heart. But you weren't built to carry that burden anyway. So I'm glad you brought it here to the foot of the cross. Now just leave it here. Some of you need to leave stuff at the cross before you walk out of this room today. You're not wired and built to have that type of anxiety and worry. God wants you to have life. Jesus said, life to the fullest. Doesn't mean happy-go-lucky all the time, but the sense of joy that we've been talking about in this epistle is something much deeper than circumstantial happiness. What it is is a deep-seated joy of who Christ is and all that he's done for you. Take that list on the back of your program. Just continue to list them out. One thing after another. My sins are forgiven. I have a savior. I got great friends. I got a good church. The Holy Spirit leads me. I have a spouse who loves me. I have good health. I have, you know, enough money to pay my bills. God's preparing a place for me. My eternity is secure. Let your heart flood with things of thanksgiving. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in him. Amen. Finally, brothers, just right on the heels of this. And he still got, you know, sweetie and friendly in his mind here a little bit. They need to uh, agree with one another and then they need to rejoice. But he says, finally, brothers, whatever is true. Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Lord.